0: On The Job, with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg.
1: It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here with you. Hey, Sally, not with us again this week. She'll be rejoining the On The Job caravan in the next couple of weeks. Really looking forward to catching up with her again. An important episode today that takes us overseas to the war in Ukraine. For the last seven weeks, we've been watching, reading and hearing about the horrors unfolding as Russia's invasion of Ukraine takes place. And it's been brave journalists who've been bringing us that news. They take incredible risks to tell the truth of what's going on, and they play an important role as well in the information war, the propaganda war that unfolds when a conflict like this starts. Tom Much is one such journalist. He's a Kiwi freelancer who was in Ukraine and had been in Ukraine prior to the war and has covered the war since it began. He's uh, worked for the Daily Beast, the Times, New Lines magazine, amongst others. And he was there for the first month of the conflict before he was able to get out of the country for a bit of respite. I caught up with Tom whilst he was resting and recuperating uh, before he was heading back to Ukraine to continue his work. I spoke to him about... The difficulty, the challenges, and the importance for journalists to cover war zones and how they go about doing it in a way that makes sure that they get to the heart of the story, but also just how dangerous it is to be a war correspondent in the 21st century. Here's my conversation with journalist Tom Much. Tom, where have we found you now? Where are you at the moment? I'm in Warsaw currently. And how's the recuperation going? How have you sort of been able to process the last month? What sort of uh, experiences have you had?
0: Oh, I mean, I was really looking forward to getting out of here, like, you know, doing a bit of traveling, seeing some of my friends, you know, going out, going out drinking. I have just been sleeping basically for the last four days uh, rather than doing anything else.
1: So, it's been pretty tough. Give people a sense of where you were in Ukraine and, and uh, were you there working as a journalist before the war started? Were you sort of covering the build up to the conflict?
0: I was, yes. So, I was in Ukraine for about two months in total. So, I got there about mid to late January. I had a few assignments to cover the build up, and then it ended up with me being in Kiev when the war started. We woke up at like 5.30 in the morning to the sounds of like rockets all around Kiev. Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea of where I was throughout the month, we decided, me and my colleagues who were there, because everybody we know, including from all of the big papers, were being pulled out, not just pulled out of Kiev, we're pulled out of country and we were debating what we were going to do. So me and we decided to kind of go for a halfway. We evacuated from Kiev, but we went to Western Ukraine. So we spent a little bit of time in Helmanitsky and Lviv, just to see you know, how the war was going to go. It looked like the war was going pretty well, so we decided to stay in Ukraine. And we ended up basically traveling all throughout the country. We went back to Kiev. We went to Odessa, Nikolaev, you know, down south, the big uh, Black Sea port cities that uh, are very strategically important, We went to Dnipro, which is the center of the country, which is sort of one of the staging areas for refugees from the east as they go west. And we also went to Kharkiv, which is the second biggest city in Ukraine and easily one of the most heavily destroyed and bombed and war-torn cities in the country.
1: So you saw a lot of it. We'll talk about what you did actually experience and seeing your thoughts and feelings about that. But as a journalist working in that environment, and as you said, obviously uh, people who are employed by big companies, their first responsibility is to the safety and security of their workers uh, and and pulling them out. But as a journalist, you want to stay. That's where the story is. How difficult a decision was that to make for you?
0: It was a tough one. Like As I said, I wanted to stay, but also because I'm a freelancer, you know, we don't have our own personal security advisors and often editors are very, very reluctant even if they're very well-intentioned to give you any kind of advice like that, because if you take it and then, you, then something goes wrong, they could be held liable, which is why I called my colleagues from like the biggest news organizations, and almost all of them were saying that they were being pulled out. And I was like, well, if they're all being pulled out, it makes sense for me to go as well. But then again, I did end up staying in Ukraine, just not in Kiev until, until later on until the situation stabilized a little bit.
1: Were you at all concerned as a freelancer and as I guess as a casual and insecure worker, and we talk a lot about that here at the Australian Unions, We are also uh, concerned that you were virtually, literally on your own and you had no fallback position. That was just you and whatever happened, uh, it was on your bat. I
0: mean, pretty much. I, I don't want to say I was alone because it's not like I was the only freelancer there. You know, we all, we, uh, no one there really in Ukraine was was working alone. Everyone had at least like a small posse of like other freelancers. And what would happen is that these kind of informal networks sprung up among freelancers. Oh, so-and-so is going here. Why don't you share a ride with them? Why don't you share, you know, safety and information advice with them? But in terms of institutional support, yes, that's true. I, I Institutional support is quite limited. Now, I don't also want to... C- kind of make this into an oh, you know, poor me story, because I knew when I was going to Ukraine from the start that it was very possible that this kind of thing could happen. So I don't want to say that somehow I was misled or tricked into doing work that I wasn't prepared to do, because I was going in knowing that I was unlikely to have any institutional support if things really, really hit the fan.
1: Was this your first experience of working in a uh, full-blown war zone?
0: No, it wasn't, no. So, my first experience was in Nagorno-Karabakh in October 2020, and actually there, I did have an institutional experience that I was very, very, very concerned by and very shocked by. Uh, and that was, to be honest, as equally a full-blown war as, you know, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, as Ukraine was, it just happened on a much smaller scale over a smaller period of territory and with smaller countries involved. But that was still a very, very deadly destructive war. And I saw a lot of, you know, very intense fighting there. I also covered Afghanistan last year, but I was never in any of the like any of the very hot conflict areas when the conflict was taking place.
1: So you talked about disturbing or upsetting institutional experience in the Goronga Karabakh. What, What happened?
0: Okay, I'm not going to name names, but basically someone, uh, an institution sent me to cover the conflict with you know, everything that that entails. And then when I got to the conflict, decided that I was on the wrong side of the conflict and that they actually wanted me to cover from the Azerbaijani side and not the Armenian side. When I said, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. The Azerbaijani authorities already know that I've been working on the Armenian side. They said, well, in that case, no, we're more interested in the Azerbaijani side, so we're canceling your contract were really leaving me a, you know, up the creek without a paddle.
1: That's terrible that that situation happened to you. It hasn't deterred you from going on and doing this important work. And I guess you make a philosophical commitment to do this work because it's important to bear witness to what's occurring there. Is that what drives you through those frightening and difficult days in country when there's so much going on, uh, there's so many traumatic events happening moment to moment?
0: A little bit, yeah. Look, everyone has different motivations for this sort of stuff. And, and look, motivations, honestly, they run the gamut. And I, like to, I try and be as honest with, about motivation as we can here, because look, bearing witness is one of the most important things. And this is, I think, one of the things that does keep you going in this job is the knowledge that your actions and your words have meaning. Right, that they are valuable. They are looked on very highly. Then again, there are also people, and I think every single person who does this kind of job has a little bit of this in them. But I have also known people who, rather than wanting to tell a story of the war zone, want to tell, you know, the adventures of uh, me, myself, and I in the war zone, and like which I, I try and avoid as much as I possibly can, but I think is there in everybody. Else's conflicts.
1: I know a lot of foreign correspondents and have done over a long period of time too, and I know those that are attracted to returning time after time to either conflict zones or, or crisis zones because it kind of becomes addictive. Do you have to guard against that as somebody who does this for a living?
0: That's very, very true. And this is something that I've noted a lot. I, I'm experiencing it somewhat really at this moment is that having come back you know this is my third conflict zone i'm not like some old hand foreign correspondent who's done this for 20 years but i'm getting a sense of that i know what i'm doing now and one thing i've very very noticed is that usually about the first week you come back from a conflict zone especially one of this intensity everything around you feels very flat like feels very, very kind of numb. I, I, the, there's a, The scene we all talk about is the scene at the end of the film, The Hurt Locker, where he gets back from his deployment and he's just kind of... S- wandering around, he's just kind of standing in the supermarket, not knowing what's going on, because a lot of what you see, it kind of when you're back in the quote unquote real world, just feels so sort of, I guess, meaningless in comparison to what you see in, in war zones and everything war zones is so adrenaline inducing and so like emotionally intense that the kind of the real world doesn't do it for you in the same way
1: anymore. Tom, when you're in country and there's a conflict going on, how do you... Get your parameters around what to report and how to report it. There are so many pressures on you, and there's an information war going on as well. So you are trying to do your job, and you'll have your own journalistic code of ethics and your own moral compass, but there are so many pressures on you as you report and what you report. What is your process day-to-day to to doing your job?
0: Okay, so… One of the things I quite like to do in cases like this is I try and look for what's the story that's sort of not being told here. And one of the reasons I left Kiev and I didn't want to come back to Kiev is I saw this big sort of, what was happening? Is it, quite a lot of journalists would just be like saying around in Central Kiev, not really doing very much, then one big thing would happen. It would be there would be a battle on the outskirts or there'd be a missile strike somewhere. And every single journalist, when that happened, would just jump in a car, drive straight there, and they'd be, there'd be like 20 people doing the same story of the same missile strike from a slightly different camera angle. And so instead, what I had been trying to do was I had been trying to find stories that were... you I, I quite like doing stories, for instance, about how... Especially civilians are continuing their normal lives or trying to continue their normal lives, you know, in while they are in a conflict zone and you know whether it's just people reopening their shops or people you know are keeping like the train lines running or people who are now like you know have left their old jobs and are now volunteering to help the war effort i quite like those stories i quite like doing stories of people who had never kind of intended to be in the conflict but ended up just getting caught up in it anyway and sort of how how they've adapted and how they've changed you know who it's kind of broken and who it's like made stronger I hope that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's the, it's the human face, the human experience of the conflict through the eyes of an individual that I gives the, the wider picture of what's really going on, which is – the powerful stuff. How, how, how are you then not affected by that? Or how does that, how do you keep a sort of critical distance from those very visceral stories that you're hearing? And the and the bravery and the, the, the resilience and the defiance of the Ukrainian people is very alluring and it's incredibly powerful and it'll be the story of our generation in many ways. But you have to try and keep a critical distance, don't you, so that you can tell the story as a journalist. Is that difficult? It is a little
0: bit difficult because one of the okay one of the things is is that we really only have access to the Ukrainian side, right? And we have access within certain parameters. And so I'll, I'll give you like one example. We still don't entirely think we know the situation here. But I think was it yesterday or the day before the Ukrainians announced that they liberated the town of Er one of the uh, satellite towns northwest of Kiev where a lot of the battles were going on but it was difficult for us to report this and you know it was only pro-Ukrainian media reporting it simply because none of us were allowed to go there now that also does make some sense you know Three journalists had been killed in Erpin over the, you know, previous couple of weeks. So it's not like the Ukrainian authorities were just making this rule completely randomly and arbitrarily. They had very, very legitimate safety concerns. But it's a little bit like, well, okay, what do you what do you report there? And not just that, it's like, yeah, look, we know that what the Russians have done to journalists have been terrible. But we also know that there have been bad things done to journalists on the Ukrainian side. A number of journalists have been detained. Usually it's not by the military, but it's by the territorial forces. You know, the kind of like the civilians who are untrained and don't really know what we were doing. You know, I had a scary experience in Kharkiv where a drunk police officer pointed his rifle at my head and demanded to know, you know, why I was filming and why I- I was interviewing. And when I explained what a journalist was, he simply didn't understand the concept of journalism. He kept saying, but why would a journalist want to take photos and, and stuff like that? So yeah, it's kind of realizing the constraints that one side is operating on wanting to support the Ukrainian cause without coming at it uncritically and being able to give, you know, unobject- okay, and I'll give you another example, for instance, is that the Ukrainian press office used to keep coming to us on the first days of the war being like, hi, we've got these captured prison- Russian prisoners of war. Would you mm-hmm. like to interview them? And, you know, we had to say, we can't do that. One, you can't do that. It's against the Geneva Convention to parade prisoners of war in this sort of manner. And two, we have absolutely no idea of knowing whether these prisoners of war want to talk or not. And they'd be like, well, they're not under duress, And they're like, well, yes, they are under duress Because even if they say they're willing to talk, they may just be doing that to gain favor for you. you know, we, this is just not how, how things work. And we had to tell them this to them, quite frankly
1: it's no doubt a really intense month that you've been there and you've seen a sort of old-fashioned land war in a way that we haven't seen in europe for for generations so can you give us a sense of what that looks like for the population huge populations on the move and the damage that's happened within seemingly prosperous communities people who were, were living day-to-day lives that were shattered how do you get your head around what's going on there
0: so, I think the easiest way to answer that question would be to sort of give you an idea of what we saw in Kharkiv, because, you know, uh, central Kiev is pretty much deserted except for military, but it really hasn't been all smashed up. Kharkiv, which is closer to the Russian border, and that the Russians have been able to bring much heavier artillery up towards, has been flattened, not in the sense that everything is destroyed, but every, on every, pretty much every single street you walk down there are just destroyed Houses and it's every type of building imaginable. It's apartment blocks, it's schools, it's churches, it's hospitals, it's any kind of building under the sun. And you kind of you're walking around and you're like, this must have been what it felt like to be in World War Two basically just the level of destruction to an absolutely massive city in this sort of way and in such a small period of time as well we're talking like i went there three weeks after the war kicked off and that's what it already looked like that but it was also very interesting because when you started talking to people you talked to people in Kharkiv, and a lot of them would actually be in some ways more relaxed than people in the other cities in the country where the war hadn't hit us hard. And the reason that they said is look, we have already seen everything the Russians can throw at us. We've already gotten used to living with, you know, artillery over our heads every 10 minutes. And I mean, it was every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, you could hear an artillery barrage close, far off. Outgoing, in going, didn't really seem to make a difference, and uh, that—that's one of the stories I found quite interesting to tell. Was how it had changed people's attitudes towards daily life, changed people's perceptions to know kind of what they valued in life, and also it was very, very noticeable in Kharkiv, the anger that they had because this was like a culturally Russian, largely ethnic Russian, Russian-speaking city. The anger. And bitterness that they had towards Russia, they felt effectively like it was their brothers and cousins, and you know bombing them to shreds, and in some cases it literally was.
1: So that fratricidal madness that will uh, last generations now because that bitterness will remain. It, it is just terrifying to think what life is like. But the weird thing from the outside is it seems that it, people are still doing their best to live normal lives while this chaos goes on around them. It's something surreal that I can't imagine. I've never been in a war zone like that, that where people opening up shops or trying to go to work, and at the same time, air ride sirens go off, uh, and they go down to the bunker. They then get the clearance. They go back, and they get on with their daily lives. It must be damn weird.
0: I mean, honestly... No one even goes really down to the bunker anymore. Everyone's just like, oh, another bloody air raid siren, da da da. And they just go and they just keep living their normal lives. When the first air raid sirens went off, everyone would go down to the bunker and like everyone would be terrified. Now it's just like, whatever. <laughs> Sorry, that's just annoying. Stop it. Like, you know, we don't really care anymore. It just kind of becomes part of the background noise of your life.
1: How do you guard against that yourself? I mean, you're in a war zone, you're working, you're trying to do your job, you've got to stay safe, and to become inured or immune to the real danger, it must be sort of tempting because you just want to get on with your daily life. You have to stay alert, and I'm just wondering how you make sure you do that.
0: So, Okay, so for instance, I made made a few tweets about this where I basically said, look, I actually think these air raid sirens are becoming very, very, very counterproductive because what they do is you get – an air raid siren go off now 99 times out of 100 that missile is going nowhere near living. and so what is effectively happening is people are, there's this sort of boy who cried wolf syndrome in that people stop understanding you know they they, they start to think okay this is just a, this air raid siren is just a joke and they go about their daily lives so that when the real one comes it will do all of the damage it's supposed to because people have just become inured to it
1: so you get those sort of yeah. you get those moments where you just go oh, it's just another air raid siren
0: Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. And it just, when there's five going off a day and some of them, they they last for an hour and a half, it's like, well, if you spend all your time underground, you just never get anything done, right? In terms of a journalist, it's like you're kind of making these sort of split-second decisions And so especially if you're in somewhere like Kharkiv, it's a case of like always having your colleagues close to you, always having and knowing where your colleagues are and not getting separated and not going out alone, always making sure you have medical gear on you, knowing where the nearest hospitals are. You know, even if you need to like act in a split second, knowing where the nearest, uh, you know, wall or building or trench or whatever you can take cover under is, is making sure that you have like, kind of escape plans for if something goes wrong, you know, like, okay, there's been a, br- the Russians are broken through, we need to get out of the city, that you have a driver that you can call who he'll pick you up when he um, when he needs to or, or what have you.
1: So you got your plan. So, Tom, what about at home? I mean, your family, your loved ones must, they know what you're doing, so they've probably accepted you, you're going to do this sort of work. It's, <laughs> it's what you're built for. But obviously in the back of your mind, you're worried about them worrying about you. How do you manage those relationships given what you do?
0: I mean, like, honestly, it's not a. It's it's probably the most difficult part of the process to be put per- to be honest, because uh, it's a little bit like, okay, I know the risks I'm taking, but that's in a sort of a way, it's fine because I've made my own peace with it. I know I'm taking these risks, and I know that I've worked out the level of risks, and and so whereas it's like, but your family, your family does not make those decisions for you, right? It's like you're you know that you're putting them at like quite serious concern when something they have no choice over. So you just have to kind of be as honest and open about what you're doing and, and where you're going and the precautions you take. But it's not an easy process to manage and not one I enjoy.
1: Tom, you're going back, aren't you? You're going to go back to Ukraine soon.
0: More likely than not, yes.
1: Is it going to be hard to go back, <laughs> having got out of there and and having sort of decompressed and, you know, you know survived a month of very heavy fighting? And who knows what where this goes from here? But is there any reluctance to go back? Or do you feel you, you've got a duty as a journalist to see this story through?
0: I mean, it does feel a lot like I have a professional duty there now. And also, I'm kind of, I'm, I feel I'm better prepared for it than I was when it started. Because so, when it started, we really didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it was everything was really all up in the air. Now it seems fairly certain that uh, the country is not going to collapse. No one is going to capture Kiev. There are going to be, you know, more. The, the west of the country will be pretty safe. But if Belarus hasn't tried to invade by now, it's not going to. And so there is, I guess, a sort of a reluctance to put myself back in the firing line. In one sense, but in another sense, I at least have a better idea of what's coming than I think anyone did when the war kicked off. It's it's a bit easier to prepare for. It's a bit easier to plan for.
1: Well, you are a witness to history and that's something special and important and it's important to have good people who are able to tell that story. Can I get some reflections from you before you go because you've been there. In the West, here in Australia, uh, President Zelensky, by the time this goes to air, will have addressed the Australian Parliament and his stature as a leader uh, of uh, great vision and strength and, and, and defiance is, is something that's astounded people all over the world. Is that the sense you get from Ukrainians and how they feel about their president?
0: E for sure, for sure, it's a very similar thing here. Like, actually, he wasn't particularly popular before the war started you know he had that kind of classic thing that often you know like let's say populist presidents or a have where or sort of people who came from outside of politics where okay they came in promising all of this radical change and then they find it very very hard to kind of deliver it and getting caught up in the political systems and he had been able to deliver a lot of what he was promised and i knew quite a number of people who said oh we really don't like Zelensky, da 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 all of those people have, if not completely changed their tune, they've said, well, look, we've got to support him. I think they're, they're very impressed by the job he's done in the West. Everyone is very glad that he stayed in Kiev and that he didn't move out West. He's been a very good kind of figure to rally around. And there's been also a sense that a lot of people are quite liked about him, that he hasn't made this all about himself in the sense that okay so he did, apparently he doesn't get like very involved in the day-to-day military planning he leaves that to his generals i thought it was a very interesting and, and quite an impressive thing it was a very subtle thing but in that first video he posted where he was showing look here's proof i'm still in Kiev with the recognizable monument behind him it wasn't just him it was him and the top he was like four or five top aides and rather than say i'm here i'm still protecting he would be like Hi, this is the Prime Minister, he's here, this is the Ministry of of Defence, he's still here, he's still here, he's still here. And I think he comes across as quite a genuine leader with like genuine empathy for the people around him. And unlike Vladimir Putin, who has this kind of image of a sort of, it's very easy to make a contrast between Mm. the two of them, and I think Ukrainians have really appreciated that.
1: And the Ukrainian people themselves, uh, have you seen a change in Ukrainians uh, in the time that you've been there?
0: for sure one thing i have noticed is like early in the war like so there's there's a phrase that they you know they kind of use all the time which is basically like we will win after the victory we will do xyz and you could tell for about the first week people would kind of say it sort of with a little bit of hesitation as if they didn't really believe it now now they say it you know very full with very full-throated optimism i think most ukrainians now do feel that even if the Russians manage to redouble their attacks in the east, that you know, Ukraine as a as a nation will survive this, and and has survived this, and so that even the worst case scenario for them now only really looks like giving up, you know, territory in the east, and and while a lot of people maybe be very 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 angry about that, well, you know, Ukraine is is going to still be there as a country, and. I think a lot of people have sort of turned the page where they were worried that, you know, Ukraine would no longer exist to, okay, we know we're going to come out of this, you know, stronger and more united. And we're always going to have problems for our future. But it's kind of there's a light at the end of the tunnel that there might not have been in the first days of the war.
1: Tom, I know you're not feeling great, but I'm so appreciative that you've been able to give us your insight to what it's like to work as a journalist and having to make those tough decisions uh, working in a war zone. I wish you all the very best, and I hope you get rid of that cold before you go anywhere else because you sound terrible. (laughs) Look after yourself, mate. And and we'll be in touch when you you go back in there and just see how you're doing, okay?
0: Okay, really appreciate that, mate. All the best. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd.
1: That's war correspondent Tom Mutch. You can follow at Tom the Scribe with a capital T on Twitter. And he was speaking to me a week or so ago from Warsaw in Poland as he was resting and recuperating from his work in Ukraine during the war that he's heading back there in the next little while. But thank him for finding some time to talk to us and tell us about the difficult work of covering a war as a journalist and just how dangerous even more dangerous it's become in the 21st century. That's it for this week's edition of The Pod. Don't forget you can follow me at Saint Frankly on Twitter. Uh, and uh, Sally will join us again in the next couple of weeks. We've got an election campaign on the way and we'll be focusing in on that over the coming weeks as we get closer and closer to deciding who will be the next government in this country, which, of course, is going to have a massive, massive impact on the well-being and the fortunes of working people right around the country. Have a great week. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye. We all know there are moments in your life when super plays its part, both while working and in retirement. So it makes sense to be with a long-term, top-performing industry super fund like Australian Super. It's Australian, it's super, and it's yours. Disclaimer, past performance is not an indicator of future returns. Read the PDS and TMD at australiansuper.com.